Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I have such incredibly warm feelings for my guest today. I, I mean, we have known each other since we were 20. I mean, you, dude, you were like 22 or 23 and I was like 24. I was trying to figure it out today and our, our wives are like fucking sisters to each other. And, um, Jacob Dylan is to me, one of the best songwriters walking the earth. He makes great records in our twenties and a good amount of our thirties. We spend a ton of time together. Uh, not as much over the last bunch of years, but, uh, I love Jacob and his, his wife and his children a lot. And, uh, Amy considers herself an aunt to those kids. And, uh, and Jacob has an incredibly good new album coming out called exit wounds. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to him about what he does and why he does what he does. In the old days, maybe there would have been drinks and a lot of busting on each other, but so far that doesn't feel like it's 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 happening. Uh, and cigarettes maybe back then, but not now. Hi, Jacob. Hey, hey, are you? So we're not going to spend a lot, a lot of time talking about the time you beat me one on one with a broken arm, and I scored not one point. You scored twenty one. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to bring it up, uh, and I also like you say that I beat you one time. It was endless and constant. That I, you know, I for, that was in Santa Monica, right? Yeah, you had a broken arm, and you're from New York, that area where you guys grew up playing basketball. We like basketball here a lot. We watch it on TV. We play little league out here as kids. <laughs> you, uh, you want to run around a little bit, get some exercise, and you said one on one, and I said, yeah, look at your arm though. You have a broken arm, and you said, what? Well, let's just try. Let's just go anyway. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, if I had to say one of the, one of the more probably one of the more one of the moments I feel more, more shame than than most that, that you actually shut me out. It wasn't that I it oh, was close. Man. But you did say, oh yeah, yeah, actually your quote was, yeah, it's a lot harder when you're not in the driveway by yourself, is it isn't it? Did I say that to you? <laughs> That's really yeah. wait, so is one headlight like a metaphor for me having one arm and beating you anyway? It was maybe a premonition. I think I might have had that in the bag before we played that game, but I might have been thinking ahead. <laughs> I think it might have been something that like, and, you know, you saw it and then it was like, oh, right. You could do a thing with just one wing. Right. But no one, one wants to hear about a basketball game. Oh, yeah. Maybe you realize we don't need two for almost anything. One will be just fine. Apparently, apparently one is enough. <laughs> <laughs> one is plenty. Um, I, I was thinking about um, just how young we were because your first child was born in 94, right? And when I first met you, Paige was pregnant with him. So that's like 93. And, uh, you know, it's coming on 30 years, Jacob. And Well, you remember we met because uh, I was in between record deals. Yeah. And you were the, you were the first person. Uh, we had the song Six, Seven, A Heartache laying around. It didn't make it to the first record. And we were without a record deal for the second record. And we sent that song around as a demo tape to, to some people. Uh, you were the first to notice it and contact me and say you were interested in talking because you were you were, you had a job doing A&R at SBK at the time. And you were yeah, the first. You kind of got the ball. You got the ball rolling at that time when, you know, we were we were a drop band at the time, and that looks bad for anybody. That's like damaged goods. So it took somebody to step forward and say, "I don't care about that. You like the song," and that that kind of motivated other people to get interested at the time. Thanks for saying. And 
Well, I, yeah, you know, man, and you gave me a huge gift too because, I, you know, once that happened, a bunch of other people who had record companies that were functioning better than ours did uh, came and offered you a better situation. And I remember you were such a gentleman about it. And then we're going to get to the present. But I have so many things about that time because I'll tell you, you were so fucking elegant in the way you handled it. You know, you called me, first of all, and you said, hey, I, I think I got to do another thing and sign with someone else. And I said, I'll get on a plane and come out if we can talk about it tonight. Because, you know, I really did have this sense that the record was going to be huge and it was my job. And also by then, you and I had started spending some time together. And and I just thought the world of you. And, and I came out there and we went to Canner's Deli at like 10 at night, at the end of the night. Because I literally got on a plane and flew to LA. You could do that then. I just went right to the airport. And we sat down and you said, look, I don't think I can sign with you if you can, and it was great. You go, if you can honestly tell me that you know it's better situation for me and my band, I will listen to you. And I fucking really thought about it. And I just said, I can't actually promise you that. I'll promise I'll do everything I can, but I can't promise it's better than Interscope. And you said, uh, you and I are going to be friends, though. I promise that. I'm going to keep you involved. And you had me come to the studio and you're recording that record. You played me mixes. You played me the new songs and pretty much always send me your new record at some point along the way. And it's always been really meaningful to me just how well you handled that. And it was like, I remember flying back to New York pretty sad the next morning. I mean, happy I had a new friend, but flying back the next morning, pretty sad and thinking this is, I want to be the other guy in this seat. Like, I don't want to be the guy who's trying to convince somebody to do a thing that might not be in their best interests, especially an artist yeah. I love. I want to be the artist. And um, so it was meaningful to me. That disappointment uh, was, and, and the way you handled it was very meaningful. Well, you know, it was also a telling point that uh, why, you know, you were, the, you were really motivated and interested and I certainly felt the connection. You understand what it was I was doing. I thought you were a great ally to have. You know, you just can't base a lot of decisions on that alone at the time. Well, you just can't, you know. And at the time, you know, your label at the time, I didn't relate to many of the artists on it. And you obviously know where we ended up going, what, what was uh, available, it seemed, at the time. And, um, you know, it's a turning point of realizing, well, because you have to work with people you like. You have to work with people you think have the best intentions. But you also have to be aware of, can we get the job done in that situation? You know, and that was that was a turning point where I realized I you know I know I cannot you, you cannot this is not a uh, this is not a business of fr it's not the friendship business. No, right. Well, no, I mean, and also I'll say uh, I was your peer, and you ended up choosing to work with somebody who I remember uh, about a month later being like, "How's it going?" And and I remember you saying, "Well, it kind of sucks. This fucking guy doesn't think I have the single yet." I don't know how well you remember that time, but you were like, he came to like a rehearsal and he was like not happy. He didn't think we had a single. Who were we talking about? Wally. Like it was Wally, like the A&R guy. I remember you. And he was right. You know, it was before you wrote One Headlight. And I remember you were like annoyed about that. I wouldn't have done it. Like I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have known. I thought Sixth Avenue and The Difference and I thought all those songs were Angel on My Bike. You know, I would have been like, oh, it's great because I loved you and what you did. And this guy knew to be like, you have a better, you have one better one in you. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, well, first of all, that's a, that's a record business trick. You should know that trick, by the way. You're not in the record. Well, business. now I, yes, now I'm an old man. Yeah. I got it. 
have yet to write a record and turn it in and have and not have somebody say, yeah, this is great. We need more. We need one more. You know, and in reality, I've experienced that before. You know what that is? Often that's insurance. So when records don't succeed, so-and-so can tell you, well, you know, I did tell you, you needed one more song. I learned that. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a sleight of hand trick that they, <laughs> you should have known that one. Yeah. But you, you did then go write a career you know, I, making song. They've had one headline at the time. The, the, the thing was, uh, it's, it's probably true what you're saying. I believe you. It's just that nobody actually, when recording that record, nobody thought, nobody talked about One Headlight as a single. They all talked about Sixth Avenue. And, uh, you know, typically, you no, know, you know, you have a, when you make records, at least in those days, you had, you know, people planned, if you had a record that was going to have legs, you know, there'd, there'd be probably two, three singles. That was the hope, you know, and the first single was to get you out on the floor and get people to notice you. Uh, but hopefully you had something to follow it up with that was going to be your, you know, your single people talked about. And I think at the time, if I recall, there was just a lot of talk about six, seven, the heartache. And there was no once that was that was going to be the first single, but not the first single as a warm up single. It was chosen because it was the only single at the time. So that's when one headlight became an afterthought when 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 six Avenue would take it off. I remember meetings looking around in the red company saying, well, now what do we do? We got a bite. What do we do? And I raised my hand and said, what's wrong with one headlight? Well, that's great. I well, you did. I remember this day that I came um, when you were mixing it with. Did Tom Lord Algie mix that record? Yeah. yeah. And I remember I came by once when you were recording because I saw Timon and like in an after, uh, and then once when Tom Lord Algie was there, you you had me come down and you did play me mixes of like one headlight and the difference and. Even at that time, you sort of said, because I knew all the songs, but that was the only one I didn't know. And I remember you you said, oh, uh, this thing may be like either ahead of or behind Sixth Avenue. And I definitely was a Sixth Avenue heartache person because from the beginning, Andy always said, well, someone cool will sing background vocals. And then, uh, you know, Adam, I think, and you sounded so great together. It did feel like a clear single to me, but I, I do think they pushed you hard that 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 record company but here here's a here's a question and i am i have always felt um really grateful that i got to witness that whole thing man and i always felt really grateful that i got to watch the grace with which you handled becoming so successful and that that we all had that year and a half or whatever before it happened me you amy and Paige, to become real friends and spend time together i it was a really meaningful you know a really meaningful thing and watching how loyal you were to the people around you, which I think just shows tremendous character on, on your part. Well, I, you know, thank you, I guess. I hope so. I mean, I don't, you know, I think everybody believes that's true of themselves, um, ah, yeah. you know, but I, I hope, you know, if you look, if you notice that I, you know, that's, you know, I, yeah, I'm sure I felt like that then. I feel, I feel like that now, but, um, you know, you're stepping into a different world. And at the time, it, does, it never occurred to me that you don't take the people with you along the way. Those are the people you're going to, they're going to be in your life one way or another. Whoever you now meet as you're a somebody that has something to offer, that's, oh, that's important. That's a different bit. That's a whole different thing. Most likely, those people, just by design, they'll only be around as long as you have need to be together, work together. Yes. But at the end of the yep. day, you'll transition through them to somebody else and that's life, you know, but there are people you collect along the way that you hope to see around your whole life, you know, and that did that. Day and it was, I think I knew that then we'd already been through quite a bit. I already seen a lot of people come and go by the time we got to that point, you know, 
you know, of course. And you'd seen the thing of being, you know, being dropped from a label and the way people treated you. And obviously you got to witness this stuff your whole life because of your family. But I remember this too, though. When you came down to see us, we were playing the Mint. Remember that? Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, before you'd come out, you flew out to see us play. Before you came out, we were playing the Mint and the Viper. We were playing, we were, didn't have a record deal. We were playing two nights a week for months yeah. and months. And it became clear to me at some point along the way that nobody from the record business wanted to come see it. And then again, this is back when, this is, you know, 30 years ago when having record deals, you know, I think it still matters to some degree, but, you know, you needed one of, you needed somebody to back you, yeah. you know, somebody said my band got signed, you know, you thought they already made it, you know, anything that now happens is gravy, but like you made it when you just got a record deal. And that's yeah. not true. To, of course, that's different. So you can do it a lot of different ways, but we were playing all those gigs and, we couldn't get anybody from record business to come and it became clear to us to a little bit of snooping around that, you know, the previous label, uh, because I had asked to be released from Virgin records because it wasn't going well after one record. And the people who brought us there, the president, they, they were no longer there. So we were left with the new people. And when you, when you get inherited by any company, yes. I'm sure you know now in film or TV and music business with record labels, when you get inherited, it's the first thing the new guy wants to do is not deal with somebody else's leftovers. So we felt that and uh, nobody would see us. And you came out and then word got out that somebody had flown out from New York to see the band play. And the very next week, that mint was filled with executives only. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of comedy, but that's showbiz and that's how it works. Not surprising, but it's also, you know, you got, you take a minute, you kind of, you laugh to yourself the wait a second. I got the same demo tape. I got the same songs in my set. What changed? Well, what changed is nobody wants to miss out. And yes. even though they listened to the tape a week before, when they hear that someone else is taking it seriously, they got, you know, they got fear of missing out. So suddenly that room was filled with, you know, I mean, I think David Geffen was in that room that night himself. Right. You know? Well, it, it was a time before, it was a time when in certain ways your heritage was a mark against you. Like the world is different now for the children of successful people and like the public sphere. But, but back then, man, I remember thinking long and hard when I got the tape even from um, the, the person who gave it to me. And, and I remember Jody, right? Jody Peckman gave it to me. I want to credit her. She gave me the tape. And uh, I remember being like, I'm damned before putting it in. I was like, if I fucking like it, it's a disaster because it's Bob Dylan's son. And who needs that? And if I don't like it, I'm rejected. It was like the whole thing was so freighted, you know? But then when I went back and listened to the earlier record, this is what I don't understand. Like there are two songs on your first album and me a lot of people don't know those that first album but there are two songs that are still as good as like anything anyone's making shy of the moon and for me be your own girl be your own girl is still one of the best fucking love songs written in the last 30 40 years uh, i listen to that song still all the time and it's amazing that you wrote that song at like 20 years old or something like that um so that was yeah. there for them to see jacob like that that song be Your Own Girl was there for them to see, which, by the way, someone, you should do a country version so someone in country music covers that because that's a hit song for somebody. Mm, okay. You should have someone do a country-like version of it. I'm not stopping anybody from doing any versions of my songs, by the way. No, they, how are they going to hear it? They don't know it. The, yeah. That's what I was did, did, uh, did you have any idea how fast we'd go from guys in our early 20s to this? Like, I will say... The thing about connecting at that age and then us knowing each other so long, it's like, I literally cannot talk to you for three years. I mean, I hear about you all the time because our wives are constantly in touch. But when I see you, it is like seeing a long lost, like we are just connected as we've always 
been. But doesn't it feel like yesterday that we were in your backyard and the one on Mulholland that you don't li- like, like, like having beers and well, you know, cigarettes? It's well, it's you know, it's almost thirty years. Yeah. Well, that's how, well, look, when you think about it, put it in perspective, we talk about like the first Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they had to give it, they had to bring in all the original wave of rock and roll. Those were people that only been making records at that point for maybe 30 years, maybe uh, 20. I mean, I, like, you know, I embarrass myself with all the math right now, but yeah, 30 years, 30. I mean, that was for you at that time, in the early 90s, anybody who make a record for 30 years was a flat out dinosaur, you know, very few making relevant music at all. Many of them weren't alive. And it's, like uh, ancient history 30 years uh so god knows how those people feel because those 30 years to them now is 60 so god, i don't know what they feel i know and uh, but i look back and i can really um it's a fascinating thing because as as i think i mean this is a super personal thing on my end but you know amy seeing you guys have your child young is what made her know i think i can have a kid i mean she's you know you guys know this but like you guys had a baby so young you were so great with with your son and uh it was those nights kind of hanging out are one of the things that made Amy say to me, I think we're ready. Like we could have children. And so there, it's a very specific time in our lives and important to us. And, uh, but then it just seems like the time goes so fast. So I want to say, if you could say something to like us and our wives back then with everything, you know, now, like, what do you wish we knew that we didn't know? You know what? I actually don't. I, I would do the opposite. I, I don't think I know a whole lot more now than I did then. Do you? No. Nation, no. but most of it makes less sense than it used to make. Well, you know, because you're allowed to say one thing. I think you're allowed to say when you get a little bit older. It's okay to say, "Yeah, I changed my mind. I was wrong about that." Yes. You know, because especially when you do interviews and you're in print or anything, everything feels like it's a it's a contract. They're gonna have to stand by this thing forever. So when someone I do an interview and someone brings up, well, you said 95 X, Y, and Z. <laughs> I mean, the cringe because like, God knows what you said when you were 25. Why, why do artists or people like me who give interviews, why are we expected to back that up 25 years later? I mean, I have literally another 25 years of experience to say, yeah, you know, I, I, I said that. I'm sure I did. But it's okay to say, yeah, I changed my mind. I don't know. It's okay to say, yeah, I actually think it's possible, although I, I think I know a lot more things now. I can make sense of maybe even less of them than I did before. You weren't, you weren't so naive when you were 25. I mean, in a lot of ways you were, but having less information was almost helpful. You know, it allowed you just to be whimsical and do things. Yeah, I, I often say, and sometimes my kids get frustrated now, uh, my grown kids, because I will say, I don't think I know the answer to that. I don't think I know. And they're yeah. like, come on, that's women. I'm like, no, it's actually that this is all complicated and I might not know. And, and you were much less quick to say that when you're 24. Problems now saying when I ask questions, especially about my kids, just saying like, yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. Once yeah. you fix, you find out, let me know. Like I have no, there's nothing to like, you don't have to pretend. I don't have to be, there's no reason to pretend you know shit or be smart. Like it's just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me if you find out. I feel a lot more comfortable in that, in that place, but I mean, there are certain things I think each of us do know more about now, just about doing the thing that we do in some ways, in some ways. Well, experience is invaluable. There's no, there's no replacing that, you know, but there's also some, but being naive is not bad either though, you know, because it allows you just to do what you want to do and not have to have so much foresight. You, be, you become just engulfed in foresight and needing foresight all the time. Uh, but, you, you know, you also learn later on that none of these one, none of these moments are that big of an issue. They all add, all of it accumulates, adds up to something. So your, your daily decisions, you know, they really, you know, 
it just time just is going to keep moving. More things are going to come. You're going to make mistakes and you're going to regret some things, but you're going to replace it with something that's really good and something you're glad you did. And in the end, it's all an accumulation. Everything just gets compressed into, into, into a, a small center of like what mattered and the rest of it will just dissipate. That's okay. Yeah, that's a huge thing that you just said for people to hear. Like that now at 50, I'm 55, which means you're like 50 or something. And uh, maybe even, you know, uh, what's that? You're right, 50 something. Yeah, because uh, I just turned 55, so you're definitely 51. But the thing is that uh, you do realize that a lot of things, you, my friend Seth Godinoy says that you think are decisions were really just choices that you made. And, and there are only very few real decisions. And we load everything up with it. So I, I agree with you. The last time we talked with microphones was the thing we did for Interview Magazine, like in 2008. And even then, which is a long time ago, we, uh, it's funny, that seems longer ago to me than when we were in our early 20s. But there, it seemed to me you had a lot of thoughts about what it means to be a troubadour, someone playing songs. And I'm wondering, what, what do you think about that life now, the life of someone who writes songs and sings them? Where do, what's the, what meaning do you find in that pursuit now? And what, is it, what traditions does it connect you to? And that's not a way of asking about well, your dad. That's not a way of asking about your dad. I, and I'll yeah. do the, you know, that, we've had enough of those conversations. Yeah, that's coming, but not now. Um, well, I don't know if I've ever applied the word troubadour to myself. Um, Fair. But at the end, what I think I probably, but the feeling you got or what it might have meant was I, I just, you know, I always, when I started this, it was always important to me that you be self-sufficient and that, I knew that the song was going to, I never fantasized about making, it was never the records I fantasized about making. I wanted to great, make great recordings of what I was able to do. Um, and there's room for all of it, by the way. You, but, but I just, I always knew instinctively that I was going to feel the best and probably put my best foot forward. If, if I was able to write songs and be self-sufficient on my own and maybe play them, you know, pass the guitar to me, maybe I can play a song rather than, well, I don't have all my pedals and I don't have my guys and uh, what kind of tape loop or echo are you using? Like I never wanted to get, I mean, not that I can, and I'm that, that I'm that uh, bound to that either. But I always just kind of knew, like that is the goal. I think. I think that's what I want. That's. I think if I had one thing, I'd be happy knowing I, I was able to do. I'd like to know that I could do that. And then music's subjective. You might like it, you might not. But I won't have to be the guy who says, "No, I can, I'm not going to get up and jam tonight." What kind of guitars do you have? Well, I don't that's really funny. play. I just wanted to be able to be contained, self-contained, and, and do it. I mean, that's because I think at the, at the end of the day, while I've admired so many bands and artists, songwriters have always just been who I've admired most. It's just primitive. And I admire that, that you, know, you can do it with other people. You can do it with two people. You can do it like they do in Nashville with 45 people per song. You can do it any way you want. But I always, you know, when I heard a song that I really liked, I first thing I wanted to know is that it's important who, of course, is performing because that's what's getting over to you. But I always wanted to know, kind of like behind the curtain, it was not, it was not unimportant to me who wrote it. That was the most uh, that was the most um, influence I was going to have in that song was who wrote it. I mean, that, because if you, if it's only about the writer, well, then we don't have Elvis Presley, we don't have Frank Sinatra. Count a lot of people didn't write songs, and there's and that's great too. But I just always felt like I'm going to feel really self sufficient, and that's what I want to do is be able to do it alone, you know. And then you can do it with other people too, but I don't want to have to depend on anybody else to do this. So that lends itself a bit maybe to the tour aspect, but it was never about you know, being a folky or acoustic guitars. I don't play acoustics live very often. It was just really, you know, 
taking that thing and knowing that I could be with anybody anywhere and do my thing. Uh, but yes, but there was a while there mid-career when you made those three albums where it was, I think, connected to me anyway, to the blues and folk singers, like to a tradition, you, you, you know, um, because I remember you saying like these kind of songs aren't, you know, no one's doing this. No one's honoring these kind of songs. And it did, I did feel connected to me to what you do now and to what you've always done, which is find the very personal expression for this stuff that you're yeah. thinking about. You know, I, I do think people are always doing those songs. Of course, we just take different turns being in the limelight and turning younger people onto that, that side of things. Um, and they have, they have the other things and hopefully they will admire the song. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to go down the tangent right now, but you, see, you know, when people win awards and it's like they have to list who wrote the songs and it's like after the third person, that's a, that's a think tank. That's like, that's like writing songs. <laughs> it, it, it's a song, but the, you know, when people say it all sounds the same or I'm missing something, well, you're missing a human being because you're getting eight of them. You're getting eight people sharing an idea and cutting corners and really, uh, you know, bargaining with each other. Like, okay, I'll give you that second line if I can have the fourth line. You're going to get something, but you're you're not going to get John Prine. You're not going to get you won't get Bruce. You you won't get Richard Thompson. You're not, you're not going to get Judy Sill. You won't get anybody who's facing the page by themselves. And that's I I keep saying like that's okay, but over time you're just going to lose any human connection. When these songs that are written might go to any number of different country artists or pop stars, there is no identity left. There just can't be by the nature of you're getting like eight people's point of view or perspective on the same topic that we've all driven into the ground anyway so you're gonna get a lot more cliches and uh you're you're gonna miss any human connection you just are well this leads to i was gonna ask you um something it's something that we talked about over the years but uh this is something i'm understanding better now than i did which is part of what that is because i've done a bunch of those like nashville writing things like i love it's fascinating to me to try to write songs with like a group like uh, two or three people you know but a lot of what they're pushing for and not be, and it, it's because it comes from them, the singer, like basically there's a lot of pressure to create something that won't be misunderstood, right? Not on the best, even that, look, there's always going to be the best artists of the day who do the thing their way, even if they're picking the songs. Like, I don't know if you know his music or like him, but I hear a song like Sinners Like Me by Eric Church and I completely understand what that guy's saying and why. And there are lines in it that only he could have very personally written. But generally, they want it to be so clear, right? They want them. To, so that's the what's happening is right in those rooms is like the clarity of every line. But I was uh -huh. thinking in listening to your new album. I actually wrote I wrote this question down, which I want to try to find it because it, which is, oh yeah, this like how much does it matter to you to be understood on a surface level the words, or are you hoping that like the overall effect? Like the gestalt of it is to make folks feel something, even if they can't exactly parse what the words mean to you personally. Like it seems to me you've always been after, you've been in the business of communicating an emotional resonance that will make the listener feel something, think about something, but it doesn't have to be that they understand exactly what every word meant to you as you were writing it. No, first of all, I don't think songs help you about anything at all. They can yeah. be total. There, there are no parameters. You know, there, there, there are no parameters. Um, but, but specifically, does it matter to me? People understand what I'm going on about, you know, I think that there's a great number of people who listen to me who do feel that and get that. And there's also a great number of people who aren't picking up on that. And there's room for everybody. 
they can all come and listen. But and I think a certain song, look, song, like there's just, you can, you can break it down to like, what is a song? A song is like a collection of words that sound good together, that phonically get me to the next phrase that someone might want to sing along with me. Maybe there's a chorus that elevates. I mean, that's at the bulk of it. It can be that. And that's Gabba Gabba Hey, that's Wooly Bully. There's room for all of it. You know, there's totally tons of nonsensical songs or I would not say meaningless because that's not the point. It's of course not. They're, they're painting some kind of an image that you get and feel. And you can't necessarily always do that with words. You know, you can do it with expressions. And ultimately, I think it's most pleasing to me is to get by on both levels. If you want to pay attention, you want to listen, there's something here for you. If you don't, you might just love the way these words sound together. And that's okay. But I also think you've made choices at times. Like if I listen to Be Your Own Girl, that is one of the most direct songs you've ever written. And you wrote that as a very young man. And and there's basically, it'd be hard to interpret that song in ways that you didn't mean, I would suggest. Yeah. Uh, but it does seem that at times it's more open to interpretation. And I feel like that's intentional. Like it, it gives, a as a listener, I feel like you're giving a, Sort of like, uh, okay, listener, whatever you bring to this, you're going to be able to find stuff that I'm, I'm after, as opposed to me telling you exactly the specifics of what I'm dealing with. Yeah, and you know, look, there's only a certain number of topics to write about, you right. know. So what you what you have your your um, asset is that your take on it, your what angle you're coming from, your expressions of it are going to they're going to be hopefully unique or different cliches or we don't we don't need any more of them in our music we got too many of them and sometimes those are just to get to the next line and people like them and they're normal and we're, we're used to them but um uh you know i also started i've also always come at it with it's a tricky point for me i've never wanted to be too obvious or too exposed right. i come from a place of uh you know i didn't want people to, to assume too much so i spent a lot of time and i do think i've changed a bit and i've evolved from it but my early records, minus the song you're talking about, there's always one or two of those. Um, but they were a lot more, I would say, maybe uh, dense or convoluted than I've become. Because I just I, I just care a lot less now about protecting anything. Right. But when I was younger, it was difficult because, yeah, people did read into my songs. And if they did read into songs, they would come up with these crazy things that then I felt defensive of. of like, no, I would never say that in a song. That's not who I'm talking about. Right. I'm not giving way and i but i would never have an opportunity to correct anybody so i protected that because i just want didn't want anybody to assume anything that i wasn't trying to get over but it's also very hard to be a songwriter and not really sing about yourself <laughs> of course impossible you'd have to put yourself oh that's what i mean i love those those really bluesy folky acoustic based albums you made where you would uh, be able to sing about your own predicaments kind of in the characters of the agrarian, like these agrarian characters or like a world that wasn't exactly parallel to yours, but one could understand, I think, if if one wanted to, uh, what you were singing about, you know? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, there's that word that people, it's universal. That's, that is always true. That's always, you would like people to relate to your stuff. You don't want to, you know, art yeah. people out. You don't want to be... Well, yeah, you don't put yourself out of the game by making no sense to anybody. I mean, you can try that. You'll find out that ultimately there are people who are very selfish who say, no, that's exactly what you should do all the time. But I find making music that no one listens to completely <laughs> not something I want to do. I I'm hoping people listen to the songs they write. So and they should. And I love the new album. It's as good as anything you've ever done. And I think like uh, people will love it, though. It's so hard to tell who rock music fans are now or like what that means. But if you like this kind of music, this album kicks ass. Like I've loved listening to it. Oh, um, good. Yeah. 
like it's so I have about ten different thoughts in my head, and one of them, one of them is when you obliquely say the thing about people picking out stuff that you're talking about. Like I think you're, at this point, your father is so venerated. You know, years ago, you once said to me on the record, like on this interview we did, that when I talked about you know you you being his his son, and you said, well, you have to understand, it's like being Galileo's son or the Wright brothers' son, and. Uh, so there's no comp. You were like, there's really not a comp to it that exists in this world. And I completely agree. But it's funny. He's now got that this uh, um, status like he's almost a solar system. And people don't really know that guys used to go through his garbage. Like they don't understand the way how personal that obsession was because now he's just like um, acknowledged as a star in the sky or some shit like that. And mm-hmm. I think it's shifted. Right. I don't I don't. A lot of those guys are dead who who would have been really trying to unpeel it. Or do you not think that's the case? Do you still think you're uh, under the same microscope? I think a lot of those people, are, of course, they're still doing it. But I think that there's no end game. I think they may have realized that. You're not going to yes. figure anything. There, there's there's right. nothing to sort out. And actually, if you get closer to sorting it out, here comes a Christmas record. It's just going to keep confusing you. And that's going to make you probably go crazy eventually. Uh, so I think probably a lot of people have just you know, they're still there, but I think they've maybe disengaged a bit because they're actually each year that goes by, they get further and further from understanding what they were hoping to figure out. Yes. You know? Yes. And, and music and, and like, there's a bigger world of music people who don't listen that way anymore. So I That's think. True. Yeah. Well, younger people w- wouldn't, you know, I mean, I think you and I maybe were the last generation to really come in when those artists, many of them were making valuable records that were popular. That's not really true anymore. You tell somebody 20 years old today, I mean, yeah, much of them, as much as you love the Rolling Stones, the last record anybody talks about is Tattoo You, 1981. Yes. I mean, it's a long time ago. So, you know, yeah, the way that's that has to do with technology, CDs, and then the, the, to streaming and the connection music. It's, it's a, you know, we've all talked about that till we got sick in the face. What happened? The difference of holding a piece of vinyl versus a double click or something like that. But you can't pine for it because you, you look stupid if you spend too much time saying the old days were better. Um, yeah, I mean, it comes around. It does keep all coming around. I think it all circles. I mean, my daughter recently said, all right, Dad, I need you to make me very detailed Bob Dylan playlists so I can really now. And it was great. She's been playing it for it's so like it will continue on. But I just think it's a, they're listening as almost like the way we would have listened to Frank in a certain way to understand what it was that meant so much to a generation Remember Swingers? Yeah, of course. You do not find it funny, all these guys. I mean, it was a movie, but these guys are driving around in those hats and those cars, and they're all obsessed and in love with Frank Sinatra. And I do remember at the time thinking, like, well, that's, these are costumes, and this is an outfit you're wearing. And I see that. That's cool. But there's just really – it's I don't see how it's really that possible for somebody in the mid-'90s, in their mid-early 20s, a pack of them, really understanding and appreciating Frank Sinatra. When you just – you weren't there and you didn't need it. He was not a throwback star. He was a – you know, he was a comet at the time and he was everybody's, he was the biggest yes. star in the world. But when you come across it many years later, you know, how can you say my favorite music, it's Frank Sinatra and the Misfits. It's like, just go screw yourself. You're That's one hilarious. This is lifestyle choices. You're not actually, it's not, and, the, the music very hard to translate to a young person today. And in that really impactful, meaningful way. You can by, the way, by the way, Frank Sinatra and the Misfits is my Brian Setzer cover band. Okay. That's what we, that's what we call ourselves. Yeah. That's when we play the Brian Setzer music. And for the young people, uh, those are two different artists, Frank Sinatra and the Misfits. See, one was a hardcore punk band and the other uh, was a, 
uh, saloon singer. But I, I will say, do you feel any obligation at all to like be a guardian of that music, of your dad's music, of like what it meant? Or do you feel disconnected? Does any part of you feel like, hey, this is, it's important for people to understand because I've really thought about that Galileo thing and I think it's true. I really think it's true. And I wonder how it hits you or if you think it doesn't matter, your cho- it doesn't matter for you. you no, know, if I was a smarter person and I was more patient, I would have probably known this and thought about this a long time ago, but I never allowed myself to think about it too much because it's, well, you think about it. It's too overwhelming. And there, it, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, yeah, you might get on a track for a minute and think you're doing something that, but it, at the end of the day, if that were my concern, is there pressure? Is there an obligation? Like, absolutely not. There's, first of all, there's better people who represent that music better than me. That's, That's not like funny. my, they, well, there are really. And uh, I don't want that job. I don't think anybody would want that job. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, but for me, uh, no, there's no pressure, no obligation. I mean, it's, I don't mean that defiantly. I just mean, it's like, it doesn't make any, how, who could? Like, it just like, who could live a life like that? Thinking that that's what I'm supposed to do. Like, was I born to do that? I wasn't, I didn't hear that. Who could be? Is there, is anybody here to do that? By the way, some of these people, you know, they come and they go, that's it. There's nobody going to get a, get a hold of that train and like grab on and be a part of it. It's just like, they're on different levels than the rest of us and just let it go by, let it do its thing. And don't pretend to have a part of it. You have no obligation to participate. No one's looking for you. I don't just mean me. And I mean, I mean, anybody that, that you just do your own thing. That's like, that's a lose, lose right there. Yeah, I agree. It's like my, I mean, it's like Miles Davis or something. It's like, good, good luck. Uh, yeah. Good luck being, good luck figuring out the Miles Davis of it all. Yet, when I went and watched the Laurel Canyon movie you made and saw the kick you got out of exploring, not that tradition, but a different tradition to which you're connected, I felt really moved by your lightness in that, by your sense of wonder that you had. And, you know, one of my favorite songs of yours has the word wonder in it and the value of having some wonder for someone who's able to be as world weary and cynical as you. There is also a side of you, I think, that wants to be in a place of wonder. And I loved watching you dive into that world. And and I love the fucking album, Jacob. I think it's one of your best albums. Like it's even though it's not your songs, or maybe because no, even though it's not your songs, yeah. I, I I do think that there's a joy in the, your approach to that music that is really life-affirming. And I'm wondering, what did it give you? What did doing that project with Andy and those people give you? Well, you know, again, well, not again, but that, you know, that, that movie is about one year of music, really. You know, and I could, we could have made a movie about any, any given year of music. And there's great music being made. You can really, you can't say like, well, don't make one about 1971. That was a bad year for music. Like every year has got great music. But you, for what we were doing, you really did have to pick one focal point. And so it became those. And we found a kind of a hook to make a film about Laurel Canyon, which, you know, you've seen it. And there was a misunderstanding by some people that it was a film about Laurel Canyon. There's, there's not, that's for Ken Burns. That, I, we're not doing that. That's a mega series. That's from what you see in the film. But there's, our film has no Frank. Zappa doesn't have any Carol. No, that's King. Allison. Allison Elwood made that movie, and I really, really love that three part. I really dig it. But, but your thing was different. Yours is a different movie, specifically about the bands. But you asked about the joy in that. Yeah, you know. But you know, well, I love those bands. I love those songs. And those that movie is really specifically about bands getting together and collaborating and joining forces. 
and learning like for the first time what it's like to be in a band that might be successful. And it was also, yes, there was a lot going on uh, in the air with what they were writing about, but my attachment to that music really, I don't listen to that music in, in any kind of, uh, you know, lens of this stuff is going to change the world. Well, it's already 55 years later. And if it did, it would have, but I'm not invested in that way. I get to listen to his music. So it's not, it doesn't have the same impact for me. Uh, it is, it is mostly joyful to me and those people all were. And, um, my, the, really a lot of the history I go back to is I would like to be in a great band and have great songs. But it's also the stories that you got. Isn't it also though, like hearing Michelle talk about, well, I couldn't just stay home. You know, that, that for me, right. Hearing Michelle Phillips talk about how that song was written by John and why it was written by John. And you're getting such a kick out of that. And then singing that song there, there was something about like, I, you know, I, it seems to me that, you are invested. You've always been invested in your private conversations too, in honoring people who turn stuff like that into music that kind of like elevates the experience, like our experience. It seems like you care about that shit. Well, I do. It's, you know, music's very, it's, you know, you cannot romanticize it enough. It's transporting. Right. Yes. And if you look too closely at it, it just goes away like smoke. So you can't do that. You just have to, yeah, that's, I hesitate when people, when I'm asked, like, what's a certain song about? Like, well, I'm not being cagey. I'm not trying to deny anything. It's just that if you like it, it's sitting in a great place already. I don't want to start defining it. First of all, I can make up a bunch of shit that's going to make it sound a lot more interesting than it probably is. That's what you should know that when you interview songwriters, most of the time they're just lying. Because if they're being honest, they just say, yeah, I don't know what the hell I'm doing half the time. I'm just, I'm really, I'm going fishing and I hope I get something good. Yeah. If they're honest, so when you, when you, in retrospect, when you get to say, it's like it asked quite a bit about one headlight. It's like, I, you know, I don't know. 25 years ago, like I didn't take notes. I, I was, I woke up first a day and I felt some way and I wrote that and I'm glad I did. But asking me to stand by it and go back to that place, if I'm really honest, that's my answer. I just, I, you know, I, I needed songs. I was making a record. I felt something, something occurred to me. I didn't know I'd be singing it for 25 years. I mean, yes. so you, you really, so you can't look at them too closely. And, um, that did, does not in any way diminish the efforts you're supposed to put into writing songs. I do work hard on songs. I don't think everything I write that drops out is worth recording. I never, when I write it, when I write a record, there's 11 or 12 songs on it. Usually there's, I only wrote 13 because the 14th and 15th one, I didn't finish them because I knew they weren't going to make the record because they weren't very good. So I, I, I tend to really complete the things that I think have a chance at, at lasting. Um, but you often don't, you, you can't have much of an explanation. And as you get older, I used to not like that comment. I remember I resented it growing up. Uh, Keith Richards has said, he's just a receiver. He doesn't really write songs, a receiver. Yeah. I thought like that, that's like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But I, I learned to understand it later. What he meant was just don't get in the way. Don't think about it too much. Put your antennas up and whatever comes to you, you're going to write it down. And you're what, what the hell does that mean? Like, don't worry about it. It only came to you. It didn't go to anybody else today. That collection of 12 words only showed up for you today. And that's, you can call it a gift if you want. It's, I mean, I wouldn't think of it that way myself, but like it's an opportunity and you're, you are unique because those words did not come to anybody else today. And yet now you have to choose what to do with them. Do you want to keep them? Do you want to edit them? Do you want to move them around? But recognize that and uh, don't worry too much now. Like what is this all adding up to? But you got to be open. You got to be free. You, look, I mean, you got to protect yourself from saying stupid things, of course. <laughs> but, you know, you just let it. That's what I say about receiving. I do get that. I don't like when people say that. What, I guess the, what, what always threw me off about that, because other people have said it too, is when they say receiving, 
you know, it always felt to me like, do you think God is giving you these songs? I don't think God cares if you write any songs. I don't think he's worried about floods right now. He's got famine to worry about. I don't think he cares if you get a hit song. Yeah. And don't thank him at the Grammys either, by the way. He's not watching award shows. So, but that's the, the, what was implied to me early on was that they're like, I'm like, I'm getting these things. I'm special. God's somebody's giving them to me. That's not what it is. When it's, I think when you put your antenna up, you're receptive, you're receiving, you're just letting your subconscious be open. You know, it's like automatic writing. You've heard of that. You know, it's like, there is a way to do that. It's to tap places in your brain that you're, you know, where you're, where you're not overly conscious. You're not thinking about these things too much. And that's to me, I think that it, this, as often as you could be there. Um, oh, that's be the there. best place to be when I'm writing the stuff, you know, when I'm, 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 I'm writing a movie or a TV show, like, of course it, it, it's, uh, you kind of know it's, it's really hard to explain, right? Cause you do know the story you're trying to tell. Like it, I can know the story I'm trying to tell, but that thing still happens. Of course, where suddenly you, you're kind of not exactly in control of it. You are with what you do with it, with how you then shape it, all that stuff. Yeah. But there are moments when it is the best moments. And I've said this on this before, or when you're like, the combination of being hyper present, but also barely tethered to the earth at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, you can't always go there when you want to go there. So no. your brain, which is why I, f- I found it took me a long time to realize that I think I write better in the mornings. Me too. You know, I supposed to write late at night, stay up all night long, and then put the pen down before you fall asleep. Usually, that stuff sounds like tired and overworked because your brain has it's been bombarded for the last number of hours. Yes. With all. So when you start in the morning, that hasn't happened yet. You just you have clarity. Your brain is you trust yourself a lot more for like two hours. So I realized I can do better in two hours in the morning. Be done by ten a.m. Then I can if I start at six o'clock and go to six in the morning. It just doesn't. It won't get a there. lot of those people writing at night. Uh, you may not. I don't want to shock you, but they were taking a lot of fucking amphetamines, Jacob. So that also Ooh. helps them. You know what I mean? That helped them if they were like loading up. People make great records on heroin too. I'm not suggesting anybody yeah. do that. But I'm saying that was the nighttime, you know, the, the nighttime writing a lot of the time was aided and abetted by a lot of stuff. Yeah, but I think you'd have this idea that you're going to go through this day, you're going to collect ideas and then. Sure, you know, sure. Yes. In the evening and then I'm going to like start the fire and I'm going to like get, get my shit out. I'm going to start writing and like, you need know, to sit there and you're like, oh man, I just like, I got so, I got like a million things in my brain right now and I can't grab one of them. It's just, you're too, you're too, you're over uh, stimulated by that point. You yes. Know? Uh, but you learn these things. I mean, I'm 30 years later and I still don't have any advice for anybody. How to no, I mean, I'm, you know, yeah, you're still learning. You said, yeah, of course yeah, you're I'm still learning. learning. Because I'm, but, you know, you get there one way or another, you get there, but you're, if you're paying attention along the way, you start to pick up habits. You realize these are good habits. These habits, you know, those don't work anymore. So you just find new things to do. And uh, you're more aware of like, I'm not supposed to be like that person or that guy said he writes like this or that, you know, I, that didn't work for me. I read yeah. like this. Other guy said that, and I don't even like him, but he said that. Uh, you know, so you learn it's okay to admit these things. And you know, like I was saying about you know the words. I mean, I was reading there was Paul Simon. I'm not sure from which year, but he was saying the same thing. He's like, I don't know what this stuff means half time I write it, and I'm like, okay, Paul Simon can say that if he can say, I'm not sure why I put Joe DiMaggio in there. I really don't know. Yeah. Then it's like everybody just relax. I that's completely valid. I agree with you. Um, but that's what I was getting at with the thing of sometimes it's just a feeling you're trying to transmit. It's not a thought. It's a feeling. Well, I mean, look, I mean, it, it gets very complicated. It's like they are, people said it before, but it's true. They are like paintings and that every time you look at them, you can see something different. You'll focus on something different. Sometimes you'll just look at the frame, admire the frame. Your paintings can bounce through time. They, they don't have a point of view. They don't have a single pitch. They don't have pronouns attached. 
So songs are like that too. The really good ones are that pliable and flexible that they, 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 they don't exist at any time. They don't exist with anyone. They can change point of view and character by the second or third verse. And sometimes you look at your, your song, you're like, well, that just doesn't make any sense. I just changed the point of view, the perspective in the last verse. Now who am I? It's like, doesn't, don't worry about it. If you wrote it and it feels good, it sounds good. The listener's going to get it. They don't need you to say exactly I, what you I have. I have tried. I will say that for me, of all the things, the most perplexing, the thing I've thought about the most about the work that your dad ever said is the thing he says about Tangled Up in Blue. And I've never understood. I'm not asking you to explain it, believe me. But the thing he says about that was supposed to be a certain kind of painting. You know, it's a very well-known thing that he said a lot of times about that song. I have no, it's like one of my you know, five favorite songs of all time. I have no fucking idea what the actual yeah. narrative journey is or what the fuck he's talking about, about that's being a painting, but it's fine. Like yeah. uh, that's f uh, fine. Well, if There's room for all of it, you know, of course. And, and I think probably he more than when he said, it's like a painting, you, you should still probably wrestle with that. When I say the yes. expression on a, on a simpler level of, uh, just that we don't ask of those same things of paintings to make sense. We don't ask them yes. to uh, make sense. And and wait a second, this painting, I think you're saying this, but this other painting you made, you said this. Yes. Like we don't ask our paintings. Yes. We don't ask that of, of a lot of other things. But songwriters, you know, there's a need and feel to be consistent and like what kind of writer am, am I? And it's all nonsense, really. You're just trying to get a feeling across. And if you're, you know, especially now, I mean, I think I yet to do content 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 you talk so much these days you get asked oh a lot God. more today easier for me 20 years ago to say yeah i don't really want to direct you on what that song may or may not be about but now it's like it's you're constantly being asked to define yourself what kind of artist you are what kind of songwriter you it's are totally true and like it's it's never been it's never been easy to do but it's really not easier to do now than 20 years ago For people who are going to write me, not just the Jacob Dylan fans, but my my normal audience to try to explain the painter quote to me. I, I've read every fucking book. I know exactly what he meant. I just don't, I don't understand it. I know what it's supposed to mean. It's about perspective. Yeah. I understand it's about the three different perspectives and the, the different flat perspective yeah. of a painting. I, I get it. I just don't get it. Thank you. I just know, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get 10 page emails, but I do, I understand the point. I just, it doesn't uh personally uh hit what did uh, getting to spend that time with tom petty mean to you you know i had mike campbell on here and, and just back to your earlier point about how the music can come from somewhere like for me talking to mike campbell is like talking to a holy man and i know he's played with you but because it just comes through him like who fucking knows he doesn't even you know no words are written and he i mean he told me he wrote heart of the matter on the to i don't know if he ever told you the story do you know that he wrote heart of the matter sitting on the toilet he uh, you're talking about the don henley song yeah he wrote Heart of the Matter, Mike, on the fucking toilet. Did? Yeah. yeah. He just it was, uh, he, he was like, woke up and he's like, I had a guitar right next to the thing and I grabbed it and I just suddenly played dun, 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 dun. And he's like, I just wrote that whole song, made a thing out of it that day and sent it off to Don. Which is hilarious. Uh, oh, well, greatly. And um, that's the two different questions there. Yeah. And Mike Campbell has always had the great, I mean, if I could add anybody's job, it might have been Mike Campbell's. Well, because you're along for the greatest ride that anybody in a band could ask for. And you got a tremendous force standing next to you who collaborates with you, who is, you know, you're deeply connected to musically. Uh, and you don't want the limelight. It's a different job. Yep. Not everybody cut out to be the Tom Petty in a band, to do all the interviews, be up front, and have the burden every year of writing, turning yes. themselves inside. 
Uh, and Mike Campbell had a, what seems to me to be a very, he, with Tommy, had a very comfortable position that I know since I was young, people talk about guitar. I, don't, I, don't, I never understood why he wasn't on the cover of more guitar magazines, because to me, he was, he was as great as Jimmy Page or anybody else you might mention. The, but the, not only not only to write those hooks and those lines, but he wrote those songs, a lot of them, you know. So I've always had that to be there, but you're not the one everybody's always looking at, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you know, he wrote Boys of Summer for Tom, Tom, yeah. and he gave the whole track to him and and uh, and he wrote Refugee with him. But but what about what about Tom? What what did the time you got to spend with Tom mean mean to you? Because obviously, you know, yeah. I love Tom Petty. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I've said it before. I've been around a lot of people of a different generation than me. And, you know, not, not all of them are actually very kind or encouraging. There are some assholes out there. I'm not going to tell you all those guys are awesome because some are not. Um, and some try to punish the younger generation. They're not, they're not always kind. There's they're, maybe they're competitive for completely unnecessary reasons. Um, and some are really gracious and encouraging because they, they see themselves in a long line of tradition and they want you to be great too. They're not threatened by you. Why would Tom Petty be threatened by a younger guy with a Rickabacker coming up? Should, of course he wouldn't be. But that's confidence and that's being comfortable with your own position. Um, Tom was very encouraging to me through most of my career at different times. And we always seem to pop up at the right time, you know, um, whether it was just socially or, you know, allowing me to come and open up for his band. Uh, just, you know, it, it would be, it would be uh, you know, whenever that would happen, it was a complete recharge of like oh yeah, yeah just like it would reset the table it's awesome you know i haven't and he, there's other people too but tom did that plenty like you know like geez you'd see him you hang out for an hour and be like yeah i made a mess of shit for the last five years he just reset me and like that's right i was right all along i got so uh. confused five years and uh you know i got to spend more time with him more really recently before he passed uh that was invaluable and again it was right on time uh and he was incredibly witty and inc incredibly smart and if you were saying something, you could just see a smirk, which you could tell what he was about to tell you is basically, what the fuck you, why are you worried? Just go do this other, just do what you want to do. You know, and you could say that to your friend and you'd be like, well, he's an idiot. But when someone like Tom would say it to you, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah he's totally right. Because he's already shown by, I'm talking about his career. I'm not talking about, I would not dare talk about him, you know, personally in that way. That's of course, I understand. Of course, I understand. But, as another artist, as a musician, you know, he would say the right thing at the right time. And he'd already lived a life of defiance, of proving to you that, no, this is the goal. You should tell your record company to shove it. We're not raising the price. You should, these are all things that are okay to do. And in the end, these things will become your cachet as an artist, the way, where you yes. stand. Yes. That, you're doing. that is, that is going to be your assets in the end. Not this single or that single or who you went to dinner with for to get what on radio. Like, no, that's not going to care about any of that in the future. What they're really going to care about is, well, what kind of what kind of sauce did you have? What, what did you represent? How did you behave? And how did you live your life as an artist? And that's what you're, and, and there's going to be a lot of screw ups along the way. There's going to be some mistakes, but that's what you're going to have in the end is, well, what did I do for 40 something years? I wrote all these songs. You know, each one seems so important. Every move I made seems so important. Every jacket I bought seems so important. Yeah. And then at the end, it's just going to, it's going to get all accumulated into one thing of which, how did you represent yourself as an artist? How did you respect your own art? And if you didn't, how dare you expect anybody else was supposed to? Yeah, that's perfect. That makes complete sense. The thing is, a lot of people like, like Petty, they sacrifice so much personally in the pursuit of this. And uh, you're not talking about his personal life. I've read, all, I've read you know, Warren Zane's amazing book about him and watched the documentary and talked to a lot of people. But you've been able to, you know, I know your boys and they're 
amazing. You know, I know the older two, well, you know, really know them. And they're amazing. You know, one of them spent a little bit of time working on the Billions set. And uh, man, you've just, you and Paige have just raised terrific, terrific kids. And uh, you're incredibly active as a dad. And how did you, I, I guess, so few people who endeavor to do what you do are able to do that and and really focus on it. Was that a conscious choice on your part, man? Like, or were you just like, I love these people, so I'm gonna do it? Like, how did you balance being a rigorous artist, trying to get, turn yourself well, inside out with wanting to be a good father and a husband? Well, I'm not supposed to be an artist. I'm supposed to be a good father. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, that's not a question. Do you want to be an artist? Do you want, Brian, do you want to write scripts and work? That's up to you to decide, right? You get yes. that. You don't get to decide really if you're going to be a good parent or not. You're supposed to be. Yeah. Right. And, I, that, that's what you and I both feel. Yes. Not a career choice. You brought them here. You have to take care of them. Um, and, but I do understand that, you know, when you have a career and look, I, I'm not saying I did any of this really well. I appreciate you saying that, but it's never easy. And it's, it's a of course. Wrestling. Yeah, of course. Yeah. End of the day, yeah. Do your kids come around for dinner? Do they, they want to see you? Like, I guess maybe that's the proof you're going to get, you know? And like, there's a finish line to some degree that you're like, okay, I don't know what happened. A lot of time went by, but, you know, they, they come around, they seem to like me. So, okay, there's some success there itself. But yes, you can also watch. I was never, never going to be somebody, just, I wasn't wired that way, that, like some people are, to completely destroy personal lives and their own and just have a line of wreckage behind them because that this the songs meant so much you know what i mean it's too late in the game like I, i'm not that it's where this is not the beginnings of rock and roll we know what the trappings are we know what the stupidity can be and we know that we can actually behave in some some kind of decency and also have a career we don't have to just destroy lives and be narcissists to do that i've seen people do it but that but no to answer your original no it was never a conscious decision i just follow my nose it's instinctual there was nothing i was going to do you know I, you got to go home at some point you know, you you go on tour, you're going home. Like you, you got to take care of that. That's the most important part. You got to go home at some point. I, I would say the proof is in the pudding. In that I've I saw both Levi and James over the last couple of years at various times, and both of them are great. I had so much fun talking to each of them, and and uh, so I, I I that's how I you know I have a clear sense of the job you and Paige have have done with those kids, dude. Uh, we don't see each other enough. I I have such incredible fondness for you and uh such as you know the regard i have for you as an artist uh you are one of my favorite songwriters of all time uh all your records i know by heart uh there's this amazing picture of sammy when he was like four with on stage at jones beach when you and adam were playing when you and the county crows were playing together that it just is a reminder of sort of like all the stuff we've all sort of been through together so uh i yeah. love you and, and and your family and and exit wounds is Great. When when is it in? When is it the album on Spotify? Uh, well, I think it's oh album. I don't know. Probably July eighth. The record's out July eighth. But there are songs out now. A couple songs are out now, right? Oh no, I think. Um, well, just the this, this song "Roots and Wings" we performed on. I think we had Jimmy Kimmel, and that's on the radio now. But I don't know when they. I'd be lying to you if I said I knew how that that stuff. Pops I know out. "Roots and Wings" is on. I know it's on the things. I know it's on the. I'm on a tower records every tuesday morning waiting for my new record so i don't know if that's oh that's anymore. very sad dude that's really sad because in all honesty you like, know what it, 
point out because they can't see right now. I, I didn't wear a wallflower shoe. You're, you're pumping. Nobody's watching this, but I didn't, you're wearing a billion sweater. Here, here's what happened. I had a sport coat on today and a thing, and it's freezing in here. And I was like, I went into the swag box and I pulled out a fucking billions. You basically, I just pulled out a piece of swag. But yeah. in fa- I've seen you wear a lot of wallflowers gear. And like, I've seen... Yeah. At some point, somebody's talking about somebody else in a band saying, like, who that asshole is wearing his band's own shirt? It's like, nah, I, wear, I, yeah, I wear mine. What do you, what's the problem? You yeah. Know? Well, like, I realized this one day I was looking at Spike Lee, a true hero of mine, and I was looking at him wearing the Malcolm X thing and I, of his own movie. And I was like, yeah, why is it okay if Spike does it? But if I do it, um, what, so yeah, I'm wearing a billion swag. What, yeah, I'm proud of what I do. If you were proud of what you do, maybe you'd wear the wallflowers yeah. on your, uh, on your thing. Hey, Jacob, go have a great rest of your day, uh, man. And Let's catch up soon, huh? Thanks for uh, thanks for talking. Hugs to everybody. Bye, pal. See ya. Bye.